Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Gunara Karimova is one of the most infamous contemporary figures in Central Asia. The daughter of Uzbekistan's first president, Gunara was spoiled, arrogant, and avaricious. In a U.S. diplomatic cable from 2005 leaked by WikiLeaks, a U.S. diplomat refers to Gulnara as the, quote, single most hated person in Uzbekistan, unquote. Despite this reputation, Gulnara was able to use her relationship to the Uzbek president to illegally amass a fortune that included property and assets in foreign countries. And it appears there was no shortage of people and organizations both inside and outside Uzbekistan willing to help her acquire these ill-gotten gains. A recent report from Freedom for Eurasia entitled Who Enabled the Uzbek Princess details how Gulnara was able to procure some $240 million in property in more than half a dozen countries and who helped her. To discuss all this, I am fortunate to be joined by the primary authors of that recent report, Laila Nazgul Saitbek, chairwoman and founder of Freedom for Eurasia, Christian Laslett, professor of criminology at the University of Ulster, and Thomas Main, research fellow at the University of Oxford. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, and to start, for the benefit of our audience who might not be so familiar with Gulnara Karimova, could you please describe the person at the center of this tangled web of crime and corruption? And I'll start with you, Christian, if that's okay. But but Leila and Tom, uh, I want to hear what you have to say about her too. Uh, who is Gulnara Karimova, Chris? Yeah, thanks, uh, Bruce. So uh, Gulnara Karimova is the daughter of uh, Uzbekistan's first president, uh, Islam Karimov. And Islam Karimov was in power from 1991 as president until his death in late uh, 2016. And during the period of his rule, obviously it was an autocratic one, but it was also one where there emerged a shadow government of very powerful figures within the regime who were able to use the authoritarian state as their own personal devices. And there were a range of really powerful families that were at the zenith of their sort of power during this period. Um, one of the obviously most powerful families was the Karamov family. They weren't the only one, though. There were other powerful families um, associated particularly with the security services, uh, which was then known as SMB, and a few other big packs of, of, of powerful individuals. But certainly, Gunara Karamova, in her own right, became a very powerful political player. From about 2001, prior to that, she'd been living in the United States with her husband, Mansa Maksudi, who is from an Uzbek-American family, and they had an unfortunate divorce in 2001. Uh, and Gunara moved back to Uzbekistan from the US, and then she really began to build a political empire um, using her father's office to build her own uh, influence network. And from there, she was able to pretty much use government like her own personal violin. She could have decisions made in any agency within the prosecutor general's office. Um, there was evidence that she was able to write court decisions. And she was applying that power to growing her own business empire it began in in areas like uh, soft drinks, where she famously was involved in uh, uh, taking over or allegedly taking over her former husband's interest in the Coca-Cola bottlers project there. 
she then proceeded to build a, a distinct footprint in in the um, the uh, telecommunications sector, and from there she uh, and obviously once she'd established a footprint in the telecommunications sector, she really used her political authority to make it her own polit- own personal economic territory. So anyone who wanted to come in to the um, telecommunications sector had to come through her. And and that was where obviously there were a lot of international companies who were very interested in growing their own market share by coming into Central Asia and coming into Uzbekistan. And they were prepared. And in order to get access to that market, in order to get the licenses and the spectrum, they had to pay substantial bribes to Gunara Karamova, um, which were then uh, laundered through a series of um, sham commercial transactions uh, processed through offshore companies and through offshore bank accounts and 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 through those uh, th- and and that led to uh, Vimplecom, MTS and Telesonera or international telecommunication companies paying upwards of about 800 million dollars in bribes over a, a, a decade period and and also she's um, there's there's fairly significant evidence points to the fact that she also had significant control over other sectors like gas and oil as well and received benefits quite significant benefits from um, a company called Zero Max that was really a major private player at the time uh, but then of course just to finish off her fame she famously um, had a, a, a massive political downfall and and that transpired when someone within her network, um, someone with access to a lot of documents and with a grievance, potentially uh, then leaked a lot of that information. Um, and and um, and that led to exposés in the media. And then there was uh, political machinations in Uzbekistan against her, particularly from within the security services, who are a bit irritated by the the the, the amount of economic territory she was monopolising. And that led to her house arrest and then subsequent charge and imprisonment. And that's really where we got to today. Great, thank you, Chris. Uh, and and Lila, actually, I want just a little bit more about Gulnara Karima, but. Her character, right? This is not an ordinary child of, of a Central Asian leader. I mean, the, the, some other children of Central Asian leaders have done quite well, but they've done it quite quietly. But Gulnara was not really the quiet type, was she? No, she um, she really had this um, glamorous life of a um, of a celebrity. Like she was, you know, she was. Um, posing as a as a as a singer and she had her um fashion line and she was she was designing her jewelry and um yeah she was uh, she was also actively kind of promoting herself uh online on social media and uh was always kind of in the limelight mm-hmm. okay um and and tom uh if, if you want to comment on Golnara's character uh, please do but but also i'm i'm looking at your report and we'll get into like the crimes that she that she's uh, responsible for and and the corruption that she was involved in and got other people involved in with her too the your report the report describes the uh the united kingdom as a key spoke in this network um of certainly of property can you can you elaborate on that a little bit what what do you mean by a key spoke in this network Sure. Well, I think to me, Gulada represents almost the, the the purest example of a of a kleptocrat that that we we have. You know, Chris laid it out quite well there. But um, you know, any money making business in in Uzbekistan that she could get her hands on, um, she she did from uh, uh, you know Coca Cola to 
uh, cement factories to oil and gas to property to duty free uh, shops to uh, tea companies. Um, basically, Gulnara had a finger in that pie, and the only reason uh, she was allowed to do that was 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 because of her her, her familial link to the uh, president. You know, she didn't really have any particular expertise in in business. Um, it was pure nepotism. It was pure um, corruption. Uh, and that was one of the reasons we we we, we wrote the uh, report was to just highlight her her crimes, but also to emphasise how the you know, Western countries have have enabled her to 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 do that, and the UK in particular. Uh, you know, here she has over or had over fifty million pounds worth of, of of property, but also a lot of the the companies that she used uh, were registered either on in mainland United Kingdom or in our overseas territories, in Gibraltar, in the British Virgin Islands. And it was these vehicles that she used to to perpetrate these crimes. Give me an idea of what kind of properties she acquired, uh, managed to acquire. We'll move over to the companies in a second, but I'm just curious about the actual property. Well, uh, there's uh, some beautiful pictures in our uh, uh, report. You can actually uh, see examples of the type of things uh, she was she was buying. But she 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 built a she bought a, a chateau in 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 France, for example. Uh, she brought uh, bought a three different uh, apartments in a um, uh, a block in, in in Mayfair, very exclusive area of, of, of London, uh, for around fifteen million uh, pounds. Uh, she had a, a, a smaller property uh, uh, for her for her son, who was uh, studying in the UK at the time, uh, and also she had a uh, a ginormous property in in Surrey just outside of London worth uh, at the time 18 million uh, pounds and that had uh, you know a, a kind of a, a private boating lake it had a, an indoor swimming pool all the things you would associate associate with oligarchs and and, and kleptocrats uh, you know w- w- was found in this in this house okay thank you um chris you, you know you mentioned that this is a woman with no business real business experience at all i mean she she was in the us briefly studying uh, even at harvard for a little while but no business background at all uh, so surely she needed help to try to get to manage companies you mentioned the telecommunications service who who were some of the people who helped her to to start this uh, illegal business empire of hers yeah, I mean, it's it's actually quite interesting. Um, I've had the opportunity to read quite a significant um, volume of material that's emerged from criminal investigations in Switzerland uh, relating to, obviously, to, to, to Gunara Karamova and her, her business empire, um, a lot of which was actually administered through Switzerland in addition to the UK. They were the real two core offshore hubs, if you will, and and what was quite you know interesting was that what really Karamova had was a family office. I mean that's a a term of art used in the financial world to refer to ultra high net worth individuals. Um, they usually set up their own kind of hedge fund, if you will. You know, uh, expert financial managers who come in and 
manage everything. They manage their investments, um, their private schools for their kids. Um, they set everything up. They manage it all. And Gunara had that set up. She had dozens of employees. So this was a well-oiled machine. It wasn't a one-person or two-person operation. This was a sophisticated business empire. And so it was a hierarchical organization. It was a sophisticated family office. It was setting up hundreds of offshore companies, um, what they referred to as dumpsters, because uh, within his family office, they were well aware that these companies were burner companies used to layer uh, uh, money that came from predicate crimes and then to um, then uh, take the financial value and put it into into investments, including those properties, which, which Tom just referred to. And obviously, so and and this 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 family office, you know, it would then have people who would look after particular parts of her business empire. Um, probably the most famous person in that respect was Bexod Akhmadov, who was a telecom a real telecommunications whiz um, in Uzbekistan, a real bright young star, and he had a lot of acumen with respect to. To, to the telecommunications industry. And, and, and Gunara relied heavily on him to do a lot of the muscle work um, with regard to negotiating these deals. And he was a tough operator. He'd get in there and really muscle um, companies like Telius and Nira to make sure that, 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 that his boss would get the best possible deal from in terms of these bribe payments. And, 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 and then actually in the end with Bexod Akhmadov, um, he claims that he ended up being threatened by his boss who believed he'd been involved in um, certain untoward activity that threatened her interests and he fled with his family to Russia. But in addition to that, obviously, the family office reached out to a whole range of specialist uh, firms, which I'm sure Tom can actually jump on and talk a little bit more about. But, you know, they used the services of Standard Chartered Bank in the UK. They they dealt with hundreds of millions of dollars of money coming from the telecoms bribes. And um, and we have obviously approached the Serious Fraud Office to ask what what exactly the UK has done to investigate that aspect of the, of the caper. And they re- simply refer to us that they've done general work sanctioning uh, standard charter in regard to uh, failures with anti-money laundering, but they've done nothing specific in regard to this particular episode. Then subsequently, Lombard Odier actually won Karamova's account from standard charter. They went after it um, because she's a high net worth individual, very, a very exciting opportunity for a private bank. And so her business was moved to Lombard Odier, which is based in Switzerland. They had obviously, um, in addition to these banks, they had corporate service providers, they had law firms. And maybe at that point, it'd be good to pass over Tom, who's, who's a real whiz in understanding the intricate kind of offshore framework that, that, that Karamova and her, her family office worked through. Okay, thank you. Tom, can you elaborate and give us some more information about that? Sure. Well, what's interesting is sometimes actually Gulnara would have properties in her own name. So in, in Russia, for example, they, they were in her own name until things started to go to go badly. And then she flipped them to British Virgin Island companies to, to, to hide her continued ownership uh, of those properties. But when it comes to, you know, more in quotes, you know, reputable jurisdictions like the UK, she would use uh, solicitors firms and accountancy firms and really use her, her, her boyfriend and ex-husband, Rustam Madumarov, as a, as a, as a proxy. Uh, so she was really kind of, at the beginning at least, 
uh, uh, hidden from from view, and it was Rustam Madumarov presenting himself as the beneficial owner of uh, of all these uh, offshore offshore companies uh, through which uh, the property was 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 bought. Now, in two thousand and ten, for example, when a lot of these properties were were bought, there wasn't any information really in the public domain. Uh, linking Madumarov to to Krimova. but when it starts getting interesting is 2012 13 when details start to leak out about this uh, about this scandal, and many articles did indeed say that Madumarov was Krimova's you know, business partner and, and 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 boyfriend. So what was being so then the, then the question becomes you know what did the the professionals who were involved in uh, in business with Madumarov what due diligence did, did they do on trying to assess whether these um, uh, links to Karimova were, were, were true or not? And I think that's where it starts to get interesting from a, an anti-money laundering perspective. And if I could just jump in there very quick, Bruce, and just add to what Tom said. You know, we, I've, I've looked at some of the due diligence documentation when Madame Aroff, her, boy, her boyfriend, and, and briefly her husband. And, you, you know, obviously... Corporate service providers um, in the UK were asking for his source of wealth, as they're required to under anti-money laundering regulations. And in the subsequent documentation that was provided, they refer to companies, uh, media companies, as being a source of wealth. And had um, those media companies been checked out, they would have seen quite significant reporting claiming those media companies are in fact connected, owned by Gulnara Karamova. So there, there was potentially here quite serious derelictions of due diligence. And another really startling case, I think, is one of the other main proxies that uh, Gunara used, and I'm uh, apologies if I mispronounce her name, Guyana Avakian. And she was, you know, the Tackleant Limited. She was the owner of Tackleant Limited. She, she was a person who, from the perspective of Lombardo the Air, from the perspective of Standard Charter, she was doing hundreds of millions of dollars of business in Uzbekistan, of telecommunications business. So, of course, as banks, they should be saying, uh, Avaki, and why, um, you know, it's a lot of money. Um, and they should particularly be asking that because at the time when she set up Takalant Limited, she was 20 years old. Uh, she was doing an undergraduate degree, I believe, in Kazakhstan. And when you look at some of the due diligence documents where she discusses how she managed at the very tender age of her early 20s to scale the epic heights of telecommunications in Uzbekistan. She refers to the fact that her uncle, um, who now lives in America, she said, is a bit of a bit of a, a mini tycoon, a bit of an entrepreneur. And through a process of osmosis, she learned a lot of tricks on how to get ahead in the business world. And just through a bit of elbow grease, she went into Uzbekistan and made it big. And, and those kind of explanations appear <laughs> to satisfied people, which just really begs belief. Uh, yeah, and to say the least. Um, Lila, also, before we get away uh, to go to Golnara's fall, uh, I, I wondered if you could t- speak a little bit about um, Golnara. She was, when all this was going on, she was actually an official of the Uzbek government in a lot of these places, right? Yeah, she... She was an official and it also obviously played a big role that she was the daughter of the president and hence um, she pretty much had unlimited power and unlimited um, influence over um, the government offices. And with that, I actually also want to mention this very 
uh, interesting situation that we had to face with the asset return and the the, the court proceedings. And I think I will, uh, yeah. But I, I think Chris would be great in in providing more detail because he was uh, really thoroughly following this issue of how the courts. Uh, in Sweden and Switzerland have actually made the decision that um, to, to release her money. Uh, well, the, the Swiss court has made the decision to release her money to her possibly. Um, and and the, the Swe- Swedish court um, have uh, decided not to go after the officials that have bribed her because she was not an official at the time. Which, uh, which clearly shows the, the problem with, I guess, understanding in the West of the situation in these Central Asian countries where you really don't have to hold any official post in order to have um, the influence over, you know, such decisions as, um, for example, you know, the, the licenses and, and uh, you really don't need to have a, a, a post to, to collect bribes. Because as we uh, see from so many examples in Uzbekistan and in the neighboring countries as well, the family members of presidents, they they do this sort of business and um, they, they do collect bribes, sometimes not even, you know, with, without, without an official, um, without an official post. So um, I, I think, Chris, could you could you tell us that interesting thing about the, the, the court, uh, the court decision in Switzerland? I think that's um, that's an important point to discuss. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, and I think the point you touch on there, Leila, about, um, you know, is absolutely spot on on a more general level. There is a, a real deficiency in international anti-money laundering, anti-corruption systems that they rely on formal designations of people as public officials, which doesn't really register the fact that there are plenty of jurisdictions where people can wield political authority and control organs of government without a- any formal office and and right now in Uzbekistan I can tell you there are people who who the Uzbek public may think have retired they haven't and they continue to control government at very senior levels and they continue to use that control to wield um, to to advance the business interests of their families but of course AML systems and anti-corruption systems won't pick that up um, because they're not in a formal office and that's certainly what's happened in Switzerland it's in, it's quite incredible and because I think the the tenor of this conversation I think has been that it's almost so well established that it's it's beyond recognition that um, Gunara Karamova had significant political authority in Uzbekistan and and abused that entrusted power for her own financial gain. But actually, in Switzerland, um, the um, the the Chamber of Appeal has decided has uh, made a decision that moves in the opposite direction. So, in um, obviously, Switzerland has been a core site where her assets have been frozen, and the federal prosecutor in Switzerland was looking to seize those assets so that they can be returned to victims in Uzbekistan, which is obviously the Uzbekistan public. And what happened was they were originally successful in in doing that. And then there was an appeal over an amount of $293 million. And that appeal went to the Chamber of Appeal in the uh, Swiss Federal Court. And and Gunara Karamova's Swiss Council argued that Ms. Karamova was not a public official. And if she's not a public official, she can't be bribed because she has no, no, no office to be bribed to abuse. 
and and the uh, and as a result, if she couldn't be bribed, um, then then there was no predicate crime. And if there's no predicate crime, the Swiss authority has had no basis on which to seize and return the assets. And the uh, court of appeal um, concluded um, and fa- and found in favour, large part, uh, with the defence counsel, saying that from the evidence that they have received, it is in their mind, just as, as conceivable that Ms. Karamova was a talented young businesswoman um, who certainly had a bit of family influence and used that to um, help some private clients get ahead in Uzbekistan. And, um, and therefore, that's not a crime. And therefore, um, the, the assets may well, it's not decided yet, it's going back to the lower court. But there is a significant risk now that uh, Takalant Limited um, is going to receive back $300 million. And I think that's a kind of reminder. I think we talk about this case and we don't realise that actually there's been, that, that there's, there's been a, a real, uh, a lot of own goals here and a lot of failures. Actually, when you look at the entire situation, its entirety, you have Gunara in prison in, in Uzbekistan, but she was imprisoned for organised crime offences. And the government has rejected any idea that she wielded political authority and that she abused that authority. They've simply said that she's an organised criminal. Um, so she's never been prosecuted successfully on this ground um, in a fair trial in Uzbekistan. Um, so that's been a failure. And then um, you see the, 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 the deferred prosecution agreements that were signed with the three telecommunication companies. But as Leila pointed out, um, the Telesanira um, executives were, were discharged or were, were, were uh, let off because um, the Swedish court said Ms. Karamova was not a public official and therefore could not be bribed. And that very same rationale has now been used to thwart asset recovery or potentially thwart asset recovery efforts in Switzerland. And incredibly, um, the counsel for Bexod Akhmadov, who's a UK lawyer, I think, has written an article in a US law journal. And in that article, he, in fact, considers that the deferred prosecution agreements are an injustice, uh, that the Department of Justice in America, used its power to kind of strong arm these tellies, these companies into signing these deferred prosecution agreements, when in fact they were guilty of no crime. So in fact, the lawyers are going so far as to suggest there's not even a crime under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So it's quite an incredible situation. So if I can just jump in real quickly. So if these payments to Gulnara Karimova were not a bribe, what were they, is the question that I have, for example. Like how it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the, the conclusion of, of the court is that unless the, I mean, it, it, it's an open decision, right? So the the courts have not said, listen, we're we're, we're concluding that Ms. Karamova is not a public official. They've said that the prosecutor has failed to persuade the courts that Ms. Karamova had public authority or political authority and that she abused that authority. And in that light, then, yes, those payments made by the various telecommunication companies cannot be considered bribes. And I think that then means that, you know, not only for this case, but for any future case, and I know Tom's done really good work on this on unexplained wealth orders in, in, um, in the UK that have been um, leveled or attempted to be leveled and, and against Kazakh uh, figures, and, and it's been a failure because prosecutors 
are not very good at being able to evidence these parallel structures that allow people like Gulnara Karamova to obtain significant political authority. And they need to get much better at being able to articulate to that courts than to evidence that to the courts and then link the payments to that political authority. And that is not happening at the moment. And so there's a significant challenge ahead. Okay, thank you. And we have reached the halfway point in our discussion. So it's time for me to remind that this is the Medjilis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Pinier, host of the Medjilis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. We're talking about the recent report from the organization Freedom for Eurasia on who enabled the Uzbek princess that details how Gulnara Karimova, the eldest daughter of Uzbekistan's first president, managed to illegally acquire billions of dollars worth of property and assets. And joining me for this discussion are Christian Laslett, professor of criminology at the University of Ulster. Thomas Main, Research Fellow at the University of Oxford, and Laila Nazgul Saitbek, Chairwoman and Founder of Freedom for Eurasia. Thank you. And let, let's go with how things, you guys were already talking about, everything starts to come unraveled for Gonara Karimova. So what did we find out once they started bringing some of these cases to, you've mentioned some of this, but what are they finding out once they start to investigate her, her network and how she's been able to acquire some of this uh, wealth, you know, in one case, buying back a company essentially for for much, uh, uh, selling it off again for much more than she bought it for, um, things like that. And then we'll get to the repatri- repatriation of funds. Um, Tom, do you want to go ahead and start, especially since you're doing the unexplained wealth? Um, can you link t- tell us something about well, first the organizations, but also some of the property in the UK. Sure. Well, obviously, everything started to unravel first in in, in Switzerland, where the the, the Swiss bank, um, you know, was suspicious when uh, Avakian was was going to the bank and trying to with, withdraw money, and they they found out that Dakmedov was uh, Khmedov was uh, on the uh, uh, Interpol uh, wanted list uh, uh, for fraud, wanted for fraud in in, in Uzbekistan, and this kick started a, a whole. Uh, you know, slough of investigations that, uh, uh, you know, really revealed that she was receiving these bribes from uh, the telecommunications uh, companies. And then since then, there obviously have been some attempts to repatriate some of the funds, especially in relation to the the, the property. I think what the report uh, makes clear is, is how far behind the curve the UK has been in comparison with some of the other countries. So, for example, uh, you know, France, where she had three properties, including that, that chateau I mentioned uh, earlier, um, you know, the, as soon as the, the French had learned about this, they, they, they raided the properties in 2013 and had them frozen by 2014. Now, there's certainly been questions raised about the transparency of that repatriation, but at least the French authorities did something. Uh, whereas in the UK, uh, you know, there were lists online documenting how uh, uh, Gulnara had all these properties in, in, in Mayfair. Even Tatler magazine, a kind of fashion magazine in, in the UK, was had a had a report on you know the rich and famous uh, and, and mentioned Gulnara having having these properties. Yet it took the the UK a further three years to seemingly do anything. Uh, and it was 2017 that the Sirius Ford office uh, produced a freezing order on, on, on three of the properties, uh, at which point two of the properties, two of the other properties, as uh, so she had five in total, uh, had already been uh, sold. Uh, there's a question about whether they, they, they could have acted in time 
based on the information to to prevent prevent that uh, sale. Um, but certainly, uh, they could have done something before 2017. And that case is still ongoing. So we're six years uh, shy now of, of 2017. And still the serious fraud office is, is, is working on trying to, to, to recover uh, the money from those three remaining properties. It's not, uh, it's not really good enough. Chris, you know, one of the things that, that strikes me about Bilnara Karimova and her, her fall from grace is that it, I mean, it, it ended up being something of a total collapse. So she was able to operate for all these years. And then once the first investigation and court case starts, then everything starts to fall apart right away. Uh, one, how do you think she managed to continue to work for so long uh, when there was all clearly all this evidence around, that, you know, as we see from the ensuing law cases? And, and why do you think um, they waited until, you know, there were so many countries and so many different companies involved in this. Why did they wait until finally someone broke the ice and then everyone kind of jumped on this in, in their own countries and started investigating it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I think that, yeah, she, she, she the whole, the ice broke, yeah, as you said. I mean, she, um, you know, there was a lot of evidence Really, I mean, I think you can go back to almost 2003, where there was some excellent work done by a range of different reporters, one from the Moscow Times, another one from the Financial Times, and they were raising the alarm back then. They were um, making serious claims back then that, um, that, that Karamova was definitely involved in, you know, some very sketchy dealings. And they specifically said um, within the within the telecommunications industry, particularly through a company that was in Rabita, and so that was on the record. Um, there was material on the record because um, her financial manager, um, her financial manager, who I might add now lives in the US, who he alleges that he was forced to work for her back in 2001. I think it began because his brother was taken hostage by the presidential security services and he was frog marched back from the UAE and forced to work for um, Karamova um, he was he was 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 uh, uh, fled to the uh, after 2003 he fled to the United States and provided information again on these uh, illicit dealings that Karamova um, was implicated in so there was a track record that would have allowed any bank any corporate service provider who was at all interested in doing uh, thorough due diligence, or not even that thorough due diligence, <laughs> a sort of Google search or a Lexus news search. Um, you know, we're not talking about some highbrow stuff. It's very basic. Um, it, 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 you know, it was, uh, and, and yet um, nothing was really done. And, um, and she was able to prosper and was able to grow and was able to, to you know, um, engage in a lot, a lot bigger and bolder enterprises. And Tom has mentioned cement, because gas and oil, there's just it's so much that, there. And, I mean, it makes you wonder if given her uh, involvement in gas and oil, how much of that, where's that money now? That's never even talked about. Well, uh, gas and oil in Uzbekistan is a huge industry. Where did all that money go? And where is it now? And who's got their hands on it? It's certainly not the people of Uzbekistan. And I think, you know, that goes to show that, and I can tell you right now, that there are people 
um, and I speak about Uzbekistan because that's where I, I do the vast majority of my investigative work. Um, there are there are families there right now in positions of high office with vast amounts of political authority who engage in audacious schemes um, that are very much akin to what Karamova pioneered. And I use those words, pioneered. She pioneered an approach that has now become mainstream. And, and um, they're operating as freely through all the same jurisdictions, through all the same financial institutions. They're operating out of the UK. They're operating out of Cyprus. They're operating out of Switzerland. They're operating out of Singapore. Um, and that just goes to show that actually the AML controls that we think should be identifying this sort of material are a bit of a mirage. And what ended up um, really being the downfall of Gunara Karamova, it was not because the anti-corruption systems did their job. It was because Gunara Karamova, according to uh, uh, Akhmadov, began to get out of control, threaten him and other people, and they ran. And, and I would anticipate that that had a fair amount to do with that information being solicited and 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 uh, uh, to to journalists across the world and on top of that you had machinations inside the Uzbek state. I mean, this was there were people who were very aggrieved with what she was doing and the amount of economic territory she had seized, um, particularly within the security services, who at the time were extremely powerful, and they were manoeuvring to oust her and to get rid of her. Uh, and to take over her territory, and they've done that very successfully. You only have to go and look at um, Zero Max and companies like that got muscled out of the gas and oil. Go and look at who controls gas and oil today, and you might find answers as to some of the people who may have been behind her downfall in Uzbekistan. But, you know, the, 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 the point is that it wasn't because of anti-corruption systems. It was because there were people who desired to bring her down for political reasons that all this information came out. And once it came out, then, as you said, the, the, it felt like a deck of cards. The Swiss suddenly, um, you know, had to swoop. And then at the same time, you had the United States and the Dutch governments both proceed to um, go after her. But at that time, she was a soiled figure. You know, she wasn't, um, and, and so in a way you could perhaps argue she was a safer target because she wasn't in power anymore. She was disgraced. She was disgraced domestically. She was disgraced internationally. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's easier to go after those kinds of figures than to take the more courageous step and go after people who are not disgraced, who are very much at the top of the political pile. Uh, because when you do go after those figures, you, you start to, potentially affect your country's geopolitical interests in the region. Um, and, the fa and, and obviously there are a lot of governments who aren't prepared to do that, and, there are, and, and that's a real shame. No, thank you, because that, that was really one of my big questions. You know, I mean, uh, I've been covering Central Asia for, ooh, since the mid-'90s, and, and I remember Korea, uh, uh, Gulnara was a train wreck about to happen for so long. I mean, even in the late-'90s, you could kind of see that this was going to end badly, and uh, she was very greedy and very ambitious at the same time. Chris, you mentioned that, that there's other officials, certainly in Uzbekistan, that were involved in this. And, and this is a question that I hope all of you, got, all of you will pitch in on. But when, when the Swiss prosecutors were investigating Golnara, they, they said later that the head of the community, I believe the head of the communications department at the time in Uzbekistan, Abdullah Aribov, uh, his signature was on many, many of the documents that they were looking at in, in uh, connection with the, the Telea or Telea Sonera uh, company. But and and uh, Abdullah Aripov is today the prime minister of Uzbekistan. 
Um, so would anyone want to comment on some of these other officials in Uzbekistan that, that seem at least seem to have known something about her? Because especially in Aripov's case, he kind of vanished once the scandal broke. Uh, he fell out of grace with Islam Karimov, but then he came back under the new president. Um, so I'm, I've always been curious about his role and the role of others. Well, I mean, certainly, uh, Bruce and Aripov, um, certainly having looked at very closely at the um, court documents in, in Switzerland and also the um, some of the evidence which the prosecutor put forward then, there, um, yes, certainly it's been alleged uh, and, and Karamova has claimed in testimony she gave to the prosecutor that she gave kickbacks to him um, in return for him signing off on um, those deals. Now, of course, that's that's an allegation that she has made and, and, and it hasn't been verified, but certainly um, that has been some of the information that's been disclosed in proceedings in Switzerland. Uh, we, I mean, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any other official who has been named. I might be corrected by my colleagues here, but he is the main one who to date has been named um, uh, officially. And the only other thing to note is that also in Switzerland, it's not only actually um, recently we just discovered it's not just um, Karamova and the telecommunications companies who are being investigated in Switzerland over um, bribes. So the Swiss prosecutor is also uh, investigating RITA, uh, a major Swiss multinational company that deals with uh, agricultural machinery. And they're also alleging that, uh, that, that RITA was bribing Karamova amongst other officials. So that's the only other thing we know from the Swiss jurisdiction at the moment, that yes, there have been allegations made of, of kickbacks to the Prime Minister and there have been allegations made that indeed um, the bribe givers aren't just the three telecommunications companies we know about, but also they've mentioned in the proceedings uh, uh, RITA. And we've also learnt a lot more in Switzerland about Zeromax, about significant financial benefits that Zeromax was giving to um, to Kilnara Karamova. Uh, but I don't know about any other additional officials in Uzbekistan who've been implicated. I I just wanted to, to add that there weren't any official allegations against, for example, the head of SNB at the time in Oyatov or the, the chairman of the National Bank or some other officials. However, when you look at the 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 materials connected to Gulnara's case, it's, it's it becomes quite clear that whatever she was doing was not possible to do without their cooperation. Because obviously, you know, the, she wouldn't have been able to even um, do those um, foreign currency transactions without the involvement of the National Bank, for example. And I mean, none of that would have been possible without if she didn't have the, the, the cooperation from the other ministers and um, and other officials. Uh, it's something that needs to be also possibly investigated in the future. No, thank you. Because, of course, a lot of finger pointed at some of these foreign companies and foreign organizations that were involved with Gulnara, but uh, very little talk, certainly in Uzbekistan, about who might have been connected to her when she was uh, making all these deals. Okay, we, I am conscious of the fact that we're running low on time. I do want to talk about the repatriation of some of these funds and the problems. It's been mentioned during this conversation, I know. Uh, but this is something that's certainly important to the people of Uzbekistan. What's holding up the repatriation of some of this money? And, and can you give me an idea of, of 
where all this money is. I mean, how many different countries are we talking about at the moment? Um, Tom, you want to start? Sure. Well, the the, the investigation uh, into Karimova featured, I think, at least 19 different countries and, and, and jurisdictions. Now, I think this is maybe the the, the hidden story of of of, of Karimova is is um, you know what has happened to this to this money. Uh, Chris touched on it earlier. You know, I mentioned the the the, the repatriation of the properties uh, in 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 France, and that was done with with very little transparency. Several NGOs uh, raised uh, concerns about the the process. Uh, there have since then been established these uh, principles, the GFAR principles, the Global Forum on Asset Recovery, which uh, really acts as a kind of a, a you know best practice in, in in what should happen when you're returning money to uh, a, an authoritarian uh, state. And these include the fact that civil society should be involved, local civil society should be involved in in, in deciding where the money goes, and the fact that the money should go to to, to benefit the the people, but. When the the money from France was repatriated, I think it was about twenty million dollars uh, or so. You know, perhaps not uh, you know a, a large amount of money in the grand scheme of things, but 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 certainly enough to to run you know several healthcare programs. Uh, this money was was really sent back with with with, with very little transparency. We, we, you know, it was supposedly sent back to the Uzbek budget, but we, we don't even have uh, details confirming you know that's the case. And I think that's the overarching question about all these repatriations. We we touched on Switzerland and the the the, the horrendous mess that that is with 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 potentially three hundred million going back to uh, Karimova. But the money that is repatriated, we have to do it in a, in in a way which is transparent. Uh, uh, and uh, you know benefits the people. Um, there is a a, um, a precedent for this uh, in the early two thousands when uh, following the Kazakhgate sc- scandal, which saw various money also in uh, Switzerland, surprise surprise, frozen uh, in relation to uh, Kazakhstan's oil industry. It was held in a private account uh, of, of, of of Nazarbayev. Um, a special foundation called Bata was 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 created, which. Uh, had the World Bank involved and uh, had certain provisions like this money was not going could not go to 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 any uh, Kazakh official and was um, you know went through a special program to uh, benefit uh, impoverished uh, families families with disabled children and so forth in in, in Kazakhstan um, so we, we, we have the uh, an example there of how to do it properly. Uh, but we're not seeing that in in Uzbekistan, and the danger is, as Chris alluded to, you know, the money is just going to go back to, to to different people who who want uh, you know uh, their uh, their fingers in the pie. Um, and could I jump in there just to to add to what Tom said? I think that you know, in, at least to to give some credit, I think there has been admirable work done in Switzerland to try and set up a kind of structure that Tom just referred to. So the Swiss government in collaboration with the Uzbek, the Uzbek parties has been looking to set up a transparent mechanism through which to return the money and to do so in a way that engages civil society. And so they've set up what's known as a UN special trust mechanism. And currently, 
unfortunately, only $113 million has been successfully seized. But that $113 million, that, that is successfully seized in Switzerland. Uh, and that $113 million will now be distributed back to Uzbekistan through this UN trust mechanism. So there'll be a number of UN agency uh, officials who'll be uh, looking after it. And then the money will go into a, a range of social programs that are designed to benefit the people of Uzbekistan. And there'll be a civil society advisory committee that will be there to support the work as well. So I think that is a that is a, a an, on an otherwise cloudy day, that is a bit of a silver lining. Um, and obviously what would be ideal though is if this trust mechanism had a lot more in its reserve than $113 million because that is a drop in the ocean of what we're talking about here. We're talking about potentially billions of dollars. And you ask Bruce where it is. It is a huge chunk of it is in Switzerland. Unfortunately, some of that money, as I've talked about before, $300 million or $293 million could potentially go back. There was another $70 million or so that couldn't be seized because even though it was linked to what they saw as highly suspicious offshore companies, it couldn't be linked back to the telecommunications bribery. So it could have come from another um, deal. And certainly there'd be a huge amount of offshore wealth that, that would be in Karamova vehicles that have come from Zeromax, but none of the none of the um, Zeromax-related work in gas and oil has ever been prosecuted, so there's no predicate crime to, to or justification to seize that wealth. And so that money is off somewhere we don't know. There's money rec- related to the telecommunications bribes sitting in Switzerland, sitting in Belgium, sitting in Ireland, and it's all been frozen. Um, and now it's really teetering on the edge. And the question is... Is Gulnara Karamova's council going to really drive home this initial victory they've had and get back all this money? And then and then obviously that will go back to, to Karamova and her family. Or will either the Swiss prosecutors go back to the drawing board and find a new tact? Or there's another possibility. The United States government has also frozen the money all these assets we're talking about, because it all passed through um, US financial institutions, which gives them jurisdiction. Unfortunately, the US INREM, uh, that is their civil forfeiture action against the property, um, is currently sitting in traction uh, in the US courts where it's just rolling over and nothing's being done. And that's obviously sitting against a context where maybe this would have been a primary concern for the US Department of Justice uh, three or four years ago. But with the war in Ukraine and everything that's going on with the Russia sanctions, these issues have been pushed far, far to the periphery. And so there's a real risk unless someone like the US government or um, we've asked the, the Gibraltar government to do something because they also have jurisdiction and could engage in in prosecutions and asset recovery. Unfortunately, they have not yet come to the table either. So really, it's whether there will be either the Swiss, the US, the Gibraltars, someone has to come to the table now and, and do something for the Uzbek people and, and try and secure these assets. Otherwise, it could well be lost. Okay, thank you. Um, and we are getting running out of time, um, but I do want to give you a chance to make some last comments. I, I'm curious. I have one last question, although feel free during uh, when you have a chance to speak to talk about anything you think we missed. How has Gulnara Karimova's case set some precedents in how to combat this in any way? Uh, you know, we know, I mentioned at the start of the show that she's not the only child of Central Asian leaders who's taken plenty of advantage, plenty advantage of 
her situation to enrich herself, uh, or in this case, the children in themselves. Are there more mechanisms for fighting this kind of investigating and fighting this kind of crime and, and repatriating the money back to these countries than there was 10 years ago when all this news broke? Yeah, I um I just I wanted to to uh, to jump in on this question because I really want to to name some names and uh, uh th- there are examples. There is for example Maxim Bakiev who is living in the UK in in a in a mansion in Surrey and he's still you know running his operations out of London. He wasn't even investigated, and there is um, there is actually a number of people. There is Dariga Nazarbayeva, for example, and she was investigated. If you have a minute, I, I will try to keep my part short so that maybe Tom can add uh, some information on how ugly that situation with Dariga's um, assets in the UK went. Um, there is Abdul Qadir. Uh, he is running his operations and is participating in the largest um, uh, projects in Central Asia, both actually in, in, in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan still. He's running his operations out of German and UK companies. We, this obviously needs to be investigated because they're laundering their funds through Western systems. And we, if we don't stop it, it's just it's going to contaminate um, the Western democracies completely. And um, the 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 effect that the, this dirty money has on Western democracy is 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 really bad. It's eroding the institutions. It's um, it's now endangering the free speech here in the West. We saw that with uh, with uh, slaps against the journalists and writers. So if we if if very urgently some steps are not taken, we are already late. We are already too late to take action. And um, if we just wait for for longer, um, the question is, will will it be too late to to try and find the solution? Thank you. Thank you, um, Tom. What about that? You know, I mean, Dariga and the survivor managed to fend off these charges of unexplained wealth. Are are we any closer, to, you know, in the West anyway, to developing laws to to come after these people? I, I think um, yes and no. I don't think the the Gulnada story really changed anything. Uh, you know, it, it really is so dispiriting. Some of the things we've been hearing about today that even with this, you know, the most clear cut example perhaps we ever have had in regard to kleptocracy. Uh, you know, we're still having these battles, thinking that we're going to send three hundred million back to this, you know, corrupt criminal woman. I think maybe, if anything, the the you know Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, I think, has. Uh, started to, to hit home, certainly in the UK, about how it was not wise to let this this flood of, of Russian money uh, into the UK uh, from you know from the two thousands. Um, we we are starting on that on that path. We have created unexplained wealth orders recently. We adopted a a new register of uh, of, of of property. So if you hide your ownership of uh, a, a house in the UK using an offshore company, as Gulnada did, you are now going to have to put the name of the, the owner of that company on on, on record. Uh, and I think certain preliminary evidence suggests that we have, uh, that there have been perhaps fewer off, offshore sales uh, since this 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 uh, law, law came in. But we're still a, a, a very long way uh, from, from tackling this uh, properly. And what we really need to do is, is examine ways of uh, uh, non-conviction-based asset forfeiture, which is a mouthful, but what it means is, you know, when we we don't have a criminal conviction, as we don't in the vast majority of the of cases, 
uh, we mentioned, you know, Gulnaru is, is one where we, 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 we do have one in Uzbekistan and, uh, you know, an, an indictment in, in the US. Uh, that's very rare when we don't have uh, a conviction. We need to look at ways about having how, how we, 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 we freeze this, this money. Um, my, my final point is, okay, we've maybe frozen some of Gulnara's money, but let's look at Kazakhstan. We have Takayev talking about, you know, we need to get this money back from uh, those very rich people in, in Kazakhstan who have uh, made all this money. You know, ha- what money has ever been frozen since Kazakhgate uh, from, 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 from Kazakhstan? You know, we're talking, again, billions and billions of dollars from oil and gas, from, from minerals, from property, uh, none of which has, has been, uh, you know, recovered uh, uh, so far. Chris? Yeah, I mean, to, to, to jump in on, on, on my end, I think that the challenge here is parity of arms. These organisations, these syndicates, these uh, networks, they have so much working in their, to their favour. They're able to administer political decisions through informal processes that never appear on the public record. So they wield enormous political power but it's completely off the radar. They are able to accumulate enormous wealth. They're able to use the best legal minds, the best um, financial minds available today to organise their affairs so that it is sealed, locked, stock and smoking barrel from the view of the public or even the view of the um, justice-minded investigator from a, a prosecutor's office. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, prosecutors and authorities in, in offshore jurisdictions who then have to, who have very minimal resources, um, UK as much as anywhere else, there's there's very uh, modest resources um, being allocated. I think the US is probably the only exception to that rule. There's uh, uh, modest resources. They are, and and they're having to. Um, they also have their own KPIs. They have to meet in order to to justify their existence. And there's little motivation in that context to go after enormously complex empires that are very faintly documented and have used all the complex secrecy and trust vehicles that the that the legal minds can develop to hide everything that's going on so it's such a it's such a it's such a difficult task and that's why it's it's difficult to see that we're going to unless there's a, a vast injection of resources being put into tackling this problem it's unlikely to abate and i mean my final point would just be to say that you know we can see that today in Uzbekistan, given that is the, the topic of today, that, that Kanara Karmova was not a outlier. She was not, she's often presented in a sensational man, uh, manner, but she was a pioneer. And a lot of the methods and tactics she has used to grow her business empire has become mainstream now amongst the political elite in Uzbekistan. And while it may be in New Uzbekistan, you go and talk to anyone on the street in, in the country and they know that what's that the, the scale of corruption is bigger and bolder than it ever was. And um, you know, um and, and we're seeing it in, in a whole range of different ways. Now, you know, now this isn't necessarily corruption, but the final point I'll make here is, you know, you only have to look at and encourage your listeners to go and look at this the really great investigation that uh, I worked on with with Radio Ozadlik, um, uh, 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 the Uzbek language service for RFE. You know, it documented a really worrying 
takeover of oil and gas interests in Uzbekistan by a individual who, when you trace back who his close affiliates are, it goes back to the Inayatov family, who were the, the former, um, the, the patriarch of which was the former head of the SNB. Um, and it also linked back to Gennady Timchenko, uh, a sanctioned Russian businessman who is alleged to be very close to to the Kremlin. So you know that was that that and that that investigation. I can tell you took two years. Now, if it took us two years to get that uh, bit of uh, that information out, it just shows you how challenging it is. And unless we unless more resources are available and more tools are available, the the scale of the problem is just too vast to tackle in the current situation. Okay, well, that's a sober note to uh, leave the conversation on, but um, thank you, and we are out of time. So uh, thank you, Tom Main, and thank you, Lila Nazgul Said Beck, and thank you, Christian Laslett, for being on the show today. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjelis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjelis podcast or a Central Asia-focused newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.